So, Lord, we do that. We crown you Lord of all. (laughs) So amazing. We crown you as Lord of all. Can we say amen to that? You know, speaking of faithfulness, you know, I've, I've had a story that uh, came into my mind over the weekend, and I wasn't quite sure why it came into my mind, but I was dwelling on it a little bit, and this morning it just didn't fit, and then all of a sudden we're talking about faithfulness here in the second service, and I just felt like God wanted me to touch on it because there obviously is a reason why he's speaking it right? There's obviously, you know, whether it's people in this room, whether it's people in our community or people online who are struggling with the whole concept of God's faithfulness. And today we are declaring this not only for ourselves, but for a community to understand and to grab on to the faithfulness of God that there is no other route, there is no other solution, but as we chase after our creator, right? He is faithful. That's just who he is. And I was reminded of a story. And it's a story about a traveling evangelist, probably in the 50s or the 60s. And this traveling evangelist had quite a following and uh, had quite the response at all of their meetings. Beautiful responses everywhere they went, right? And then him and his wife had some children, And him and his wife had a few discussions because things change at home for the wife. And so the wife had this discussion with him that she felt that he could continue to function in his traveling ministry unless something came in with their kids and he needed to return home to deal with that, right? So they discussed this. They prayed about the whole thing. And the husband said, 100%, I will only do this as long as the home front is healthy, as long as the home front is okay, right? And so this guy continued to minister, and his kids were all of a sudden 14 years old or so. At the age of 14, something happens in our children. Things begin to shift. Maybe it's even at 13, Something happens in their family. And this individual was preparing to do a conference. They were speaking somewhere. And all of a sudden, he gets a phone call from his wife before he's about to speak in front of thousands and thousands of people. He's like, yes, honey, what is it? What can I do for you? And she's like, honey, it's that time. What do you mean it's that time? What are you talking about? I need you to come home. Why? And of course, a discussion starts to take place about their children. And she cannot do it. They cannot keep their son controlled. Something is happening in his life, and it's not healthy. And the husband, right at that moment, said, okay. He said, I chose to say yes to this and to be faithful in this. So right in that moment, he actually went to the people at this conference said, I cannot speak tonight. You're going to have to find somebody else because I have to find a flight home now. This is what he did. They found someone to speak. They went on with the conference. He got on a flight. He went home. For the next six years, he didn't go anywhere to speak. He stayed at home, did certain things around there. 
But after six years, something started to shift in his son. Something started to convict him from within. And his son made a decision at that point that he was going to go on to go to Bible college. And his son did. His son went on to Bible college, and not only did he graduate from Bible college, he graduated with honors to become, whether it's a pastor or whatever. So as his son went to college, he talked to his wife once again. And he said to his wife, I think it's time to go back on the road because his son was gone to college now. And they agreed. He went back on the road, but things were never the same. Crowds were not the same. Nothing was the same. Something had shifted in it. All that to say this, that his ministry fizzled out, but it was mostly because God had shifted his destiny at that point in time. But his son who graduated moved on to start an organization called Focus on the Family. And his name is James Dobson. And it's a true story of the journey of James Dobson and his dad. And he shares that story to talk about the faithfulness of God. That God is 100% faithful. It may not look the way you think it should, but he is faithful to complete what he starts in our journey. He will complete it. That's who he is. Regardless of what's in front of us right now, regardless of how it seems and how it shifts, it doesn't matter. He is faithful. He is so faithful. And we need to get that into our hearts and our spirits today, the faithfulness of God, because that lie is the very thing that actually disrupts our journey with him. Whether we'll confess it or not, whether we're dry in our faith, whether we're struggling in our prayer times, our devotions, it doesn't matter, whatever it is, there is a deeper element there is do we really believe in the faithfulness of God that he will do the things that he says he does? Do we actually truly believe that? That's a good question, right? We're great at talking about what God can do, but do we believe he can actually do it? I'm going to say yes and amen. He can do it because that's who he is. That's who he is. And so this morning, though, I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about that. I just felt like we needed to touch that. And, you know, God, right now we pray for our community. We pray for our family right here. God, that you would come against the enemy and his lies, that you are not faithful. Where this brings in discouragement, where this brings in doubts, where this begins to bring in feelings that shuts us down, God, in the name of Jesus Christ right now, we come against that, and we declare, and I want you to declare this with your mouth, that you are faithful in the name of Jesus. You are faithful. And to this community, he is a faithful God, and he will meet your needs in Jesus' name. You know, um, I, I actually wanted to touch a little bit on what, what Jim hit last week because I felt it was so important for, uh, for us to understand uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but a little bit of time, because I, I just feel like God, uh, after you spoke, Jim, it was like God began to open something up in me of understanding this even to a deeper level. You know, this whole concept of being a rev- relevant church, right, which is one of the struggles for churches across the world, 
right? And like you said, there's nothing wrong with doing certain things that are relevant as long as they're birthed by Jesus Christ. You know, that's not the issue or the problem. But if we're going after things for the sake of relevance just because we want to be cool or fit in, right, or to get certain attention from people, it's a wrong motive that the final, uh, the end of that thing is, it just doesn't work. There's actually no power that comes with that, right? It's useless. And so what God kept saying to me is we don't want to become relevant for the world. We want to become relevant for him, right? Whatever he wants, we do, right? That's it. You know, as he speaks, we do this. But this is such a hard thing. And to be quite honest, I started to ask the Lord about this because I feel like we need to declare this and break some of this off of us because it's in us deeper than we realize, Right? And the Lord reminded me. He, again, I teach in the schools, and he reminded me of a story I share with our students. Some of you have heard this, especially those who have taught heroes. But, you know, he reminded me of something because this stems back to when we're kids. Right? It honestly does. It makes me think of junior high all over again in a sense. Right? That need to fit in. Right? And there was a feeling when you knew you didn't fit into those, group, those groups, something, you know, came over us. Something bothered us. Something got in there. And I, I know it involves fear and rejection and all these things that come with it, right? But there's something in there where even as a young person, I admit it, right? There was a part of me that wanted to be cool. I wanted to be part of those in-groups, right? I just did, right? And so... I remember when I was in grade 7, and I am, I'm not proud of this story at all, right? This is a story that makes me look bad, but there is a point to it, right? Because uh, I was a bully in grade 7, and I did some things that I 100% regret, you know, but God has done something with those things. And uh, I remember when I was in grade 7, I was not the most popular guy, right? I was right in the middle, Right? I wasn't the least popular, and you guys know this. Like When we were in school, there were all the different groups. Right? We had the geeks, we had the jocks, we had the preps, we had the headbangers, we had all that stuff. Right? Now it's totally different, but that was my era. I'm not even sure what your guys' era was, but everybody knows there were different groups in your school. And I remember in grade 7, I'm in St. Albert at Albert Lacombe School. And I remember that uh, there was a cool group, and I won't say their full names, but I remember it was Robert and Kurt and a bunch of other guys. They, they were that group. They were those people. I wanted to be like them. Why? Because everybody loved them. They got attention from everybody, right? Everybody. And so I just would watch them, and I would think, what's it going to take to actually fit in? And honestly, you've got to think about this, because this is the same thing in the churches. We watched Bethel. We watched the other churches. We watched the ones that are succeeding and doing things so great and awesome. And the response is so amazing, right? And then we want to mimic those things, you know, because we think it might work for us. And that's exactly what I chose to do. I watched these guys and how they behaved. And I watched them this one day, well, to be honest with you, it wasn't one day. It was pretty much every day. There was a fella in our school who was not popular, and his name was Huey. Huey was that guy, right, that everybody pretty much just made fun of him, especially this group, right? 
And I remember every recess, this group would go and grab Huey. And, you know, I don't know, again, what you guys had in your parks. But in our parks outside back then, we had those massive tractor tires, right? And as a bunch of boys and stuff like that, when you have big tractor tires and it's winter, the best game you can think of is push-off, right? And so that's what we would do. I remember all the time. And this group, they would grab Huey, and they would actually make him play the game. They would force him onto this thing just to push him off, to make him look stupid, to hurt him, right? That was their goal, fully. I watched this day by day, and in that moment, I knew it wasn't right, right? I'm, I'm thinking to myself, these guys are so mean. It's so wrong. Somebody should do something about this, but of course, I never did anything. In fact, I went the opposite way, that one day I decided to myself is, I'm going to fit in with this group, Right? I'm going to throw away everything I stand for to fit in with this group. And so I remember sitting in a class, and we're just sitting there, and uh, Huey gets up to go to the bathroom. And I'm thinking to myself, in my lunch bag, I have one of those small orange juice boxes, right? You guys remember them? They're still around. And I'm thinking, if I take this orange juice and I squirt it all over his seat tuck his seat in, right? He's going to come into the classroom. He's going to sit on the seat. Everybody is going to laugh their heads off when he freaks out, and I'm going to be looked at as this cool kid, right? This is what I actually play out in my head, right? So I do it. I grab the orange juice. I pour it on his seat. I push the chair in, right? I wait for Huey to walk in. There he is. I'm already anticipating the moment, right? Here it is, here it is, here it is. It's going to happen. And Huey pulls his chair back. He sits down in the orange juice, and he does the complete opposite of what I thought he was going to do. He does not jump up and freak out. Actually, he didn't really even make a peep. All he did is he simply put his head down on his desk, and I saw his shoulders moving. So we all know Huey was crying. And I am sitting there saying to myself, what is he doing? I didn't want him to do this. Right? I wanted him to freak out. I'm starting to feel bad on the inside in that moment. Right? And I'm having a frustration because it didn't pan out the way I wanted it to. So eventually the teacher sees him. She sees him crying. She goes up and she starts to talk to him. Eventually they find out it was me that did it. And of course I had to go and spend some time with uh, Huey, his parents. And I had to apologize for what I had done. And uh, so I finished apologizing to him after school. And then I went out the side doors of our school. And guess who's standing there? Yeah, the cool group is all standing there outside the door. And I'm just saying, I'm just going to walk by him and go home because I'm a little embarrassed of everything I had just done. And so I get up, and I start walking out, and all of a sudden, one of the guys, Kurt, he was the main guy, the guy I wanted to be just like. And Kurt says, hey, Chris. I said, yeah. He says, come here for a minute. I said, sure. And I walk over to him. And he looks at me and goes, we saw what you did today, man. That was really cool. Why don't you hang out with us? Now, I'm dead serious. That day, I got in with this group because I destroyed somebody else, right? Literally, I wanted 
to fit in. Popularity was so important to me that it actually compromised everything I stood for as an individual, right? Everything. Now, this is crazy because I share this in the schools all the time, and the the students always ask me, um, have you ever made it right? And uh, I'm like, well, how am I supposed to make it right? And they challenged me to use Facebook. And so about six years ago, right, I actually looked Huey up on Facebook. And uh, sure enough, you know, I, I needed Jen to walk me through the process. And as she did, you know, I just typed in his name, Huey, whatever the last name was. I'll just leave that. And as soon as I type it, he's the very first face that pops up. And he's sitting there holding this fish, right? And I look at him like, that's Huey. He looks exactly the same. You know, exactly the same. And so I actually sent him a message, that, and it says, uh, Huey, I'm just wondering if you're the same Huey that went to school at Albert Lacombe. And, uh, you know, grade seven, this is your teacher, blah, blah, blah. And he says, yeah, I did, actually. I kind of remember you. And so then I write my next, uh, my next message to him, which is, hey, I, I just want to say something to you. I teach this program called Heroes. And I always talk about this kid that I bullied. And I shared what I did. And I said, Huey, that guy was you. I just want to apologize for what I did, right? Well, no response the next week. No response two weeks later, right? This is starting to irk me, right? It is. It's, it's like this guy's not going to let me off the hook. He's not going to forgive me, right? Three weeks go by, nothing. And every time I'm going into the classroom, the students are asking, did he get a hold of you? Did he get a hold of you? I'm like, no. I'm like, what did you guys do to me, right? You're going to torture me here, right? This guy is not going to forgive me. And then all of a sudden, I'd get this email back from him that says this. It says, orange juice on the seat, Ha, 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 ha. Can't say I remember it. It was one of a thousand things done to me as a kid. But I forgive you. And then he says this, will you be my Facebook friend? So to this day, me and Huey are Facebook friends. So it's a great story. It ends well. But all that to say this, right, there's something that gets conditioned in us even as young kids, right? And then we come into this setting, and we think all that stuff is gone, right? Even doing church, there is a part of us. We do want to fit in. We do want to be popular. We do want this. We do want that. But we cannot compromise for the sake of the kingdom. We can't. We cannot compromise. Whatever he actually speaks, whatever he actually says is vital to our journey. In fact, it comes down to this, right? Uh, if we read... Let me find it here. Acts 1-4. You know, when we read in Acts, it's, it's one of those stories I think we all love. To me, it's, it's the moment before one of the greatest revivals in the Bible, right? It's a great moment, and we all love the moment. And as charismatic churches, we are all over this. We love this because we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Amen? We believe on the laying on of hands that if I actually come up to you, and if you're not baptized in the Spirit, you need to listen to this, that I can come up to you, and the Word says this, as I lay my hands on you and pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there is a power that enters you, right? Something shifts. Something fully changes inside of you as an individual. Well, I just want to touch on verse 4. 
because I think it's so important for us to remind ourselves. Verse 4 says this. It says, Don't leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you what he has promised. And I actually think that's such a powerful scripture when you think about it. Really what he's saying is before you go and do anything at all, because you can go and do all this stuff, but I'm encouraging you, do not go until you have received this gift, right? The reason why is because he knows. If you go before you receive the gift, you're going to do good things, but it's lacking the power. And in everything that we are doing, we want the power. We want the power, right? We want the power. We want to see something shift in our community. It is so powerful that we feed all these people, but there is a next step that will take place. There is a next step that will take place as we believe it and as we listen to the Lord, right? We need to catch the heart of God in this and hear his heart because I think sometimes it comes down to this, right? Sometimes our own expertise and our experience in life gets in the way of what Jesus wants to do. Did you hear me? I mean, I can read a billion books how to, how to do church. Right? I'm sure many of you have read them. Right? If you do these ten things, everything will be perfectly fine. No, it won't. Right? I've tried them all. It doesn't work. Now they're collecting dust. Right? Now, not to say there's anything bad about it, but there is an element there. We are just people. Right? My expertise, my experience is useless unless it's birthed by the king. This is our desire as community church, right? We're not rejecting all these things, you know, that Bethel and other people are doing. We're not rejecting it in any way. We just want to make sure it's birthed by the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, we're mimicking a behavior as well, right? But in saying that, there are two sides, and it's the same coin. We have to do everything Jesus tells us to do. We have to, but we are going to do it. (laughs) Let me tell you something. We are the ones that are called to do it, right? He wants me and you to be his hands and his feet. He wants me and you to accomplish everything, right? That's his desire because he is an amazing teacher. That's who he is. It's an amazing thing, right? We don't do it until he speaks to us. But let me tell you something. He is speaking to us every moment of every day. He has a billion plans. He's just waiting for us to listen to his plans. And as we listen to his plans and act upon it, there is a power that will come with it, right? We want to tap into that power. We want to honor him. We want to listen to him. So I want to read something to you out of uh, Matthew So this is what I really want to hit on today, is we're going to read out of Matthew 14, verses 13 to 21. Because this is a tough one, right? It really is when you think about it. It's like we can have a billion plans of things that we want to do, you know, but we don't want to do the ones that he didn't say to do, you know. And sometimes, how do you know for sure, 
right? Sometimes you are taking a leap of faith, right? You are, you know? And so there is an element in here where we need to know that he's a good teacher, man. He actually wants to walk us through this. He actually wants to teach us how to do this stuff, and he will speak to us. And so I just want to read this to you. It's out of, uh, again, out of Matthew 14, verses 13 to 21. And this is uh, the feeding of the 5,000. We're all familiar with the story, right? We've probably heard it many, 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 many times. You know, and so I'm going to read starting at verse 13. It says, When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew to a boat privately to a solitary place. Right? And again, just to bring us up to speed of what happened in that moment is we know that John the Baptist was imprisoned. And not only was he imprisoned, right, uh, his, he was beheaded. And why was he beheaded? Because a young girl went and danced, right, for Herod, and he loved the dance so much that he said to her, I'll give you anything you want. And, of course, as a young girl, she said what every young girl would say, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter, right? That makes tons of sense. You know, if my, said, my daughter said that, she'd be sitting with Jen, right? Like, come on now, right? doesn't make sense. But this is the situation, right? John the Baptist's head has been taken off. Jesus is aware of this. And in fact, he is trying to go to a private, solitary place. Why? Because he actually cared about him. His heart was grieved. He was sad. Jesus went through those emotions, right? Hearing of this, the crowds, though, followed him on foot. From the towns, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed the sick. I think this is quite an amazing statement, right? Because, again, you know, it's just the way it goes. We've seen this. When Brownsville happened, everybody flocked to Brownsville. When Azuzu Street happened, I mean, everybody was flocking to Azuzu Street. When Jesus is alive, let me tell you, everybody is going to flock to him. Right? They're not really concerned about John the Baptist. They're not concerned about Jesus' mood in the moment. Right? And this is one of the powerful things out of this statement. Because here is Jesus, conflicted, mourning, working through something. Yet when this crowd comes and he gets there, he doesn't try to skip by them all. Right? He doesn't go find the car quickly and shut the door to bypass them. That's not what he does. He actually has compassion on them. Has full compassion on them, which is a powerful thing, and there's something in here for us to understand, right? Jesus was not owned by his mood, right? It's huge. We need to catch this, right? We all have moods, frustrations, life goes bad, and we allow our moods to control us and own us. And in this moment, Jesus refused to let his mood own him. Right? We need to catch that in our hearts. Never let our moods own us from that moment when Jesus wants to do something through us, in us, right? We have to watch those moments. Verse 15 says this, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. 
Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. So here again, we see the disciples in the moment. I, I feel like this has been me so many times, right? Send the crowds away. I just want to go and relax. Send them over to the town. They can get their own food, right? Because again, I'm often controlled by my mood, my feelings. Am I hungry? Do I have a headache? What is going on, right? And I actually, I I can remember times where I've done this, right? Just like, when is this going to end? You know, please end. Maybe some of you are going through that right now. When is this going to, well, too bad for you. It's not quite over yet, right? Well, Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. And I love this statement. You give them something to eat. I think that's so powerful. That's what he's saying to us all the time, regardless of our mood. You give them something to eat. And why else is he doing this? Because he's a good teacher. It's true. Right? I, I shared this in the morning when it just makes me think of my son and how... You know, there are many days where I have tried to teach him things. Now, I don't know if you guys are anything like me, but as a dad, I will try to teach him something. And then all of a sudden, you know, I realize he's doing it poorly. So what do I do? I step in. Absolutely, right? I step in and I start to do it for him. And then that happens again the next time and the next time. And eventually my kid knows how this works. He knows that if I do this poorly enough, dad will step in and he will do it for me, right? I am so thankful that Jesus doesn't do that. We want him to. Trust me, we want him to do that. But he's a good teacher. He's such a good teacher that he actually wants us in those moments. No, 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 no. I want you to do it. Go and feed them. Go and feed them. And what's their response? Impossible, right? Here's what they say. We we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. I mean, I can think of the, the many times when I have been moved by the Holy Spirit to do something. That's impossible. That will not work. That is silly. That cannot be God, right? And this is the statement, of course, that Jesus says to him. And there's so much more to this. Jesus replied, oops, sorry, wrong one. Verse 18. He says, bring them here to me. And he's talking about the fishes and the loaves. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. So once again, we see that Jesus does a miracle, but who does he give the loaves to? He gives the loaves to the disciples. And he wants the disciples to go and feed the people, right? This is a powerful, powerful thing. Let me just finish it off, and then I'll touch on here what I want to say. But then it says, They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. 
I think the powerful thing in here for us to understand is this, right? Because there's a statement in there that Jesus says when they are saying, this cannot be done. We have five loaves. And his word is this, bring them to me, right? This is the very word that he is speaking over us, each of us as individuals right now. I don't have enough, enough for this. I cannot do this. I am inadequate in this. Bring me what you have. If you will bring me what you have, he will multiply. A miracle will take place if you bring me what you have. I mean, this can fit into so many realms. I mean, we often want to fit this into evangelism and all this stuff, which is true. When you're speaking to somebody, I, have not, I don't know what to say. Bring him what you have. He'll fill your mouth. That's what the word says. But what about a Wednesday night of prayer? We have some people that are really good. They love to come up and pray, and they have overcome something, right? The fear of public speaking, which is huge. But this is another one. I don't have enough to bring to the table. There's nothing I could say right now on the mic. Actually, there is. I, I went out with, uh, we all know who Forrest is now, right? I went out with Forrest this past week, and he shared his experience. I don't know how many of you were here for that moment, you know, yeah, right, where he came up to the mic, and he shared with me the trepidation that was in his heart. And he started telling me, I, I just didn't know how to do it because I knew it wouldn't come out the way all these guys do it, and they do it so well. And I was so scared to bring it. But yet he brought what he had, and it was absolutely beautiful, Right? It's shifting something inside of this man. If you're watching for us, we love you so much, man. Like, it's shifting something. Right? Powerful. This is one of the things that uh, is so amazing about Jesus. Think about this with the disciples, right? When he met the disciples, they were fishermen. But he made a commitment to them. And his commitment to them was this that he wouldn't leave them where they started, that he was going to change them and turn them into something else. So they went from fishermen to becoming fishers of men, right? This is God's desire for each and every one of us in this room. I don't care what your title is right now. What you do, whether you're a fisherman, a pipe fitter, whether you work in the medical field, it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter. All it matters is this, is his promise that he's not going to leave you there. He's just not going to do that. Let's stand to our feet. I just want to read to you a statement I read. Because I think there are many of us that go through that struggle of I'm not Pastor Mark, I'm not Cam, I'm not so good on the mics, I'm not Gavin, I'm not great at evangelism, I'm not good at all this stuff, I'm just a real simple person. This is a quote I found, I just wanted to read this and let this just hopefully touch your hearts says this, it says, If your resume is sparse, your skills unimpressive, 
and your wisdom just average, fret not. God can even use you. That's the God we serve. He's not concerned with your resume. He's concerned with your obedience. He's concerned with you just saying yes so he can teach you, so he can walk with you. So if there's two things we can grab today, it's this. Before we do anything, we need to make sure we're getting the heart of Jesus. But when we do it, don't worry about what you're bringing. Just bring what you have and let the great teacher teach you what he needs to teach you. Many would look at that chapter and say the disciples failed. Their attitudes were horrible. It was just a teaching moment. His love for them was so big. He didn't focus on their attitudes. He was calling them into something that he was doing. And this is his desire for each of us. That on this journey that involves church, work, life, that we will join him in what he wants to do. And he wants to do a lot of amazing things. So, Father, I pray that as we go back into just a little time of worship here, God, that you would speak to our hearts, that there would be something inside of us that would not settle for just doing good things. And some of us, we struggle with that because it's important for us just to do those things. But God, may everything we do, may everything we say be birthed in you. And God, God, as you speak to us, I pray that you would overcome that fear that wants to grip our hearts and that we would just bring what we have to the table and trust you. Cam, why don't you come share what you shared in the morning service? So Matthew 14, all we've got is a few loaves and a few fish. How are we going to feed 5,000 people plus their wives, kids? I'm thinking that's at least 15,000 people. Jesus says, okay, bring me what you got. And then what happens? He blesses it, passes it back to them and says, okay, now go feed them. It gets fascinating at the end because after everybody ate, what does it say? They picked up baskets. How many did they pick up? How many disciples did he pass the first batch to? Talk about an object lesson. I passed out this much, 15,000 or more ate, and I've got a full basket now. Can you see their faces looking at the basket at the end of that few hours? That's a good lesson. Amen. Be blessed and encouraged as you leave.